Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Chris, how are you this week? I have a caffeine withdrawal headache and I'm doubting, questioning a lot of- Are you off caffeine? Well, I have decided that I have to be substantially less fat. I can continue to be fat, but I have to be substantially less fat (laughs) than I am. And in order to be substantially less fat, I have to do the keto, like get, like you have to get, keto keto is a demanding mistress. I tried it for like four days or something during COVID, you know, like everybody else put on a few pounds during COVID. I could not do it was the biggest B.I. And my husband wanted to try it. And at one point he did. And in two days, he's, oh my gosh, I lost seven pounds. It's so wonderful. I, I know a lot of women do it and all that stuff, but I think it is a, a male, any diet where you're like, man, I'm feeling a little hungry. I think I'll eat a steak. I think I'll just have a steak right now and do that. But to do it, if you're going to be serious, that's the only way to do it. Because otherwise you're just eating a high fat, high carb diet. So well, if you want to be serious. it made seri- me feel like a damn mental patient because the thing I really missed actually was fruit. And uh, I was like, why am I doing something where I can't eat a freaking apple? That is not the devil here. Yeah, I, I think everybody's got to do what's good for them. But to do to do it seriously, you also have to knock out caffeine. So no you sweeteners do? for the first couple of weeks. For the first couple of weeks while you're getting in the groove, you got to zero everything out and basically eat eggs, meat, cheese. And Is this co- why it didn't work for me? Because I didn't cut out the caffeine? You got to do, it's like you got to like reset, hard reboot, get your body into ketosis. And then you, and then the pounds like melt, melt off and it's great. And then well, I didn't that, cut out the caffeine. I also didn't cut out the alcohol. So you think that may have, uh, it's a factor. So yes, it's a factor, stymied but, me. but now you're, you are growing life within you. Uh, now you are making a new human. <laughs> yes. so, so you should just eat everything. You should just eat all the time. Well, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not on keto. Uh, <laughs> one thing I learned though. I may have told you this already, but when I went to the doctor and if it was like one of my first pregnancy appointments, they're like, you should be eating about 100 to 200 calories more a day, which is like a pack of gum. So you should depressing. have a handful of raw almonds. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, treat yourself. You, so they're like, you're not eating for two. <laughs> All right. We got a full slate of items for this week. Up first on our front page. These are the stories that we thought were, were most important this week. Chris, I don't know if this is like a most important story, but we've got to talk about it, which is the Rolling Stone, essentially a uh, retraction without calling it a retraction of their piece that claimed that the rise in the number of people using ivermectin, which is both a drug used on farm animals and used in people in smaller doses, they were saying the Emergency rooms are so filled with these people that they can't take in gunshot victims. And this is due to the misinformation being spread by right wing. You got to give you got to get So the, this is I love this story. I'm so glad you want you picked it because it's got a great life cycle. This has a great dumb media life cycle where you have a local story that is too good to check 
that then feeds into the national narrative. It was amazing because the whole story, when you go read it, is based on the account of one doctor Mm -hmm. and they didn't go ask the hospital for comment. The doctor is affiliated with uh, a few hospitals. They didn't ask the hospitals for comment. And he says the ERs are so backed up that gunshot victims were having hard times getting in the into facilities where they can get definitive care and be treated. So the article comes out and a hospital then comes out of the woodwork, which let's just like back up for a second. That's shoddy journalism. It is, of course, too good to check and fits into the media's narrative. But, you know, not asking basic entities involved in the story for comment like the hospitals are is this actually happening there is is ridiculous and then my favorite line on you know they published a correct when the hospital denied that this was taking place and they say oklahoma specific ivermectin overdose figures are not available but the count is unlikely to be a significant factor in hospital bed availability in a state that per the cdc currently has a seven day coverage seven day average of about 1500 COVID hospitalizations. So that was my one favorite part. My other favorite part was they then reached out to the doctor who told them all this stuff to say, hey, the hospital's disputing. He's completely ghosting them. So they got fleeced. So here's the life cycle. KFOR, I don't know what, looks like it's a, doesn't matter what kind of affiliate it is, but it's channel four, I think in Oklahoma City. Yep. And they do an interview with this doctor who, and I want to like, give this doctor may have just been, I went back, I went back and looked at it and this doctor may have just been exasperated, right? He may have been understandably exasperated that at a moment where in Oklahoma, particularly, but in a lot of, a lot of places in the, in the central part of the country where coronavirus cases are skyrocketing and you have people who are, and yes, as you say, it, it can be, human beings can be treated with ivermectin, but people who are freelancing healthcare and doing this. So, so here's this exasperated, doctor speaking, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I was just going to ask, why are you giving such a charitable account of this guy's motivation? I'm going to, I I try to give every, a charitable account of everybody's intent here, right? So I'm I'm going to say that he was exasperated. Yes, it was his real concern that caused him to twist and distort the facts. um, Well, he, so, so, so he says, the ERs are so backed up that gunshot victims were having a hard time getting to facilities where they can get definitive, where they can get definitive care and be treated. All of their ambulances are stuck at the hospital waiting for a bed to open so they can take the patient in and they don't have any. That's it. So if there's no ambulance, to take the call. There's no ambulance, to take the call. I don't know. Was he talking about ivermectin plus? Would the local news reporter get it wrong? Did he? I don't know. But here's who got it wrong. Rolling Stone. And this story made its way around Twitter. It's perfect for disdain Twitter. Look at these dumb yokels in Oklahoma. They're so dumb. They're taking a horse dewormer and gunshot victims. Also, so it's double coupons. It's uh, pooping on a red state, double coupons. It's gun, gun violence plus horse dewormer equals perfect left-wing clickbait. So Rolling Stone takes the, they're like, this is delicious clickbait. Can I have some more of it? So they write a whole piece, the lead written out of a quote from a doctor to, and I don't, no offense to Channel 4 in Oklahoma, but if I was going to write a piece off of a quote that a guy gave to the local news, I would either be very circumspect about how I used it, or I would insist on talking to the doctor before I did it, but not Rolling Stone. 
So they go for it. And over time, by the way, Rolling Stone, I believe, I, I didn't print out versions of it. Rolling Stone changed the angle of the story repeatedly because it's yeah, they changed all this the headline attention. to one hospital denies Oklahoma doctor story of ivermectin overdoses causing ER delays for gunshot victims. So, you know, basically the opposite of their original headline. So, here, so here's a story about blue America disdaining red America. It scratches all the itches. So the Rolling Stone goes with it. They publish it. And finally, after all of that, somebody goes, that sounds dumb. I don't think that could be true. That couldn't be true, could it? And then Rolling Stone finds itself doing this stuff. Joy Reid, other, like, it, it's a... Rachel Maddow signal boosting it. Yeah, the, the phenomenon, of, and we've talked about it before, and it's one of my pet peeves, is disdain as news coverage. <laughs> Look at these people. And of course, we always should point out, the right does it, red states do it to blue states. And this is a perfect, the, the, the life cycle of this dumb story, this obviously discernibly false or discernibly misleading story is, is a perfect encapsulation of how that ecosystem works. Closely related to this, we got wall-to-wall media coverage of the podcast host, Joe Rogan, getting COVID and announcing that he was being treated in part with ivermectin, the same drug, and did not seem to me to merit Joe Rogan, who's anti-vax, this did not seem to me to merit the coverage it was given by the mainstream. And what really peeved me was that they, the mainstream kept referring to ivermectin as a horse drug, which is a part, it's a half truth. And the question was, let's hear some of the coverage first. Here we go. And people like Joe Rogan, who are out there saying, hey, I just like who who has COVID and he's very popular. Younger people are listening to people like him. There was that 30 year old activist in Texas who treated himself with ivermectin. And yet uh, celebrities like Joe Rogan have been talking about uh, taking it. You see this tweet. You are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, stop it. Joe Rogan told his enormous audience this week that he's treating his illness in a way doctors are begging people not to. Ivermectin, yes, that's the deworming medicine made to kill parasites and farm animals. I think the unfortunate part about all of this is you have individuals like Joe Rogan, for example, who don't want to take an experimental vaccine but will take horse dewormer. The question to me, Chris, was why, okay, this is stupid. He's anti-vax. He's being treated with a drug not shown to have a tremendous, tremendously beneficial impact if you have COVID. Why do they need to call it a horse drug when it is prescribed in humans? Why can't they just say, you know, an ineffective treatment? It's because it's funnier. They're making fun of him. The, right. the, desire, the, the, desi- the desire is to dunk on and have scorn for Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan used to host a show where people like ate eyeballs and laid in beds with, you know, worms. And it was called Fear Factor. If, 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 so I think criticism of people like Rand Paul and others who have cast dispersions and, and freelanced on this stuff, he's a doctor, he's a U.S. senator. So maybe there's a different standard there. But dunking on Joe Rob- Rogan, an obvious, an evident goofball, right? A, a ganja, this, no one, well, maybe I'll put it this way. If you are dumb enough to take medical advice from Joe Rogan, then, and I hate to say it, but you deserve what you get. Now and- it's, I need 20 seconds for my elitist disdain, which uh, is, was, I noticed when I clicked through to the local news article that spawned the Rolling Stone piece that the yeah. doctor in question is an osteopath. So he's not an MD 
and uh geopaths yes credibility hard hit by they this story a, they do a lot of they do a lot of good work out there and go to a lot of places where other doctors don't but joe rogan here was his statement he said the grand conspiracy is that the pharmaceutical companies and he was talking to was he talking not tom papa but one comedian the joe rogan is worth listening to just for the comedians who come on his show, if you receive it as comedy. The grand conspiracy is it's pharmaceutical companies are in cahoots to try to make anybody who takes the stuff look crazy. But what's, what's the this stuff in question? Ivermectin. But what's crazy is look how better I got. I got better pretty quick, B word. I got better pretty quick, B word. So if you're taking your medical advice from somebody who says, I got better pretty quick, B word, uh, maybe look around, maybe ask. And uh, with all of this stuff, I wish that the press, and I know that there's a huge demand for COVID coverage in every aspect that you possibly can and blah, 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 blah. But every story should just basically be, here's something that we heard. Now, ask your doctor. You have a doctor. It is basically the law in the United States that you have access to a doctor now. So ask your doctor whether horse dewormer is right for you. What do we have up next? Oh, the Matt Taibbi thing. All right, and, over and to you. I don't want to, I don't want to, and I'm sure NPR did not mean it to be as bad. Uh, all right, all right. Like uh, apologetics. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't mean it to be as bad as this. Sir Chris is apologetic for somebody but, who did something stupid. But Matt, but I mean, people do stupid stuff, and I don't, I don't impute ill will to them. But the obliviousness of the, on the media, their media show, they had Matt Taibbi, who formerly worked for Rolling Stone. Matt Taibbi at his TK News Substack talks about the conversation on the media, on on the media, where they talked about free the dangers of free speech. Free speech is, is pretty dangerous. And there's a, they go after, of all, here's how you know you're deep in the nerd weeds. They're going after John Stuart Mill and his crucial defense of free speech and the philosophical backdrop of this to ask new questions like, well, maybe speech is violence. And maybe we can't really have people say whatever they want and all that stuff. And it was just- a they, Their argument was we need to take into account the psychological impact impact of some speech that speech free speech is not cost free etc cetera, etc cetera, which like does anybody think it is i don't think there's anybody arguing that I mean, my real beef having listened to the podcast was there was no alternate point of view on there right. it was just a bunch of people saying you know people's hurt feelings and trauma caused by speech mean uh, we got the first amendment wrong yeah and that it they boogeymaned speech absolutists who people who are opponents of censorship like me as free speech absolutist. Obviously I'm not. And I don't think, I don't know anyone. I mean, there are some people who are pretty like radically libertarian who are free speech absolutist, but I don't know anybody who's in the mainstream conversation on this stuff. There are a lot of people who are concerned about the closing of the American mind and the shutting down of discourse and how self-censoring and all of the safe word and safe space. There's a lot of us out there who feel that this is a serious problem for NPR to put on these censorious censors and have them gas on forever about this without even acknowledging. And, he, and I, I think what was really beneath the dignity of a show that is supposed to be about the media or should be beneath the dignity of a show that's supposed to be about the media is that they didn't even present the other, not only did they not have a guest who talked about the other point of view here, but they they characterized what the other point of view is and it was absolutism and all that stuff. It was really shoddy. pro-trauma and hurt feelings. Yes, I'm pro-, pro, pro yeah. hurt feelings community. Exactly, exactly. Oh, you're, you got the next item too. Well, 
I just want to, I'm curious to see, well, we can, I, they're, they're all of ours. They're together. We share them together. Okay. I do want to see how, so I, I keyed into to this. We're, we're recording this on Thursday and the story's out today that Stephanie Grisham, who was the titular press secretary for the Trump administration in the, in the, in the last days of the Trump administration. She quit, as I recall, on January 6th. Uh, she was one of those folks who split, but she was a close confidant. I think she was chief of staff to Melania Trump, but a close confidant of the first lady. And did she do briefings? I don't recall. Uh, I don't believe she did. I don't think she did. I, th I think the briefings came were... back with Kaylee, right? Well, Kaylee, didn't Kaylee leave? Oh, that's right. Okay. I forget, I forget the order of battle, but they didn't do a lot of, anyway, not important. What is important is, so there's this, she's got this book out and it got big pub today. Axio, CNN, all over the place, all the inside, da, 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 that, oh, this book is going to be out. There's scandals we've never heard of, and there's all this stuff. And it occurred to me that we're going to have something that we've never had before, which is, so Trump has announced he's going to do a campaign event in Iowa next month. And the fully telegraphed, fully stated by his team. Jason Miller, though, free uh, now from his captivity. Recently released from Rio or wherever. Recently released from, from yeah. being detained in Brazil. Yeah. But he was on his way to, I kid you not, CPAC Brasilia. CPAC Brasilia. Bolsonaro's CPAC. But anyway, that Trump is coming, that he's going to run. Everybody's saying he's going to run. He's saying he's thinking about it. And he's going to Iowa. So that's all you need. How do you cover... How will this work, right? Trump fixation, Trump obsession, left and right, was a dominant feature of the past six years, right? It was exhausting. All you could talk about, everything was Trump, 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 both right and left. Uh, that's all there was because it was the easiest, it was the closest weapon to hand. It was always the easiest story to do. Are we going to go back to that or are we going to go to something different? Um, I have no idea. I'm very unenthusiastic about the idea of a return to 24 seven, the like the kind of gossip coverage of Trump, because yeah, there's lots of little details. I'm sure we don't know, but you know, the big picture stuff we know, we know how this white house worked and didn't work mostly. And it, to me, it's just like circling the drain on the same themes over and over again. There's nothing that could be less interesting to me. And there will be 50 of them than a tell-all book about the Trump administration. You know why? Because they did it all. There already have been 50 of them. And they did it all out in public. They, the whole point was that they couldn't keep a secret. You're interested to know, well, you know, the Obama people were pretty good at keeping secrets. Oh, this comes out later. Remember when... Um, his first secretary of defense, Bob Gates, wrote the book. You're like, tag on. That was pretty interesting because we didn't know about the fighting behind the scenes. There's nothing anybody's going to tell me about the Trump administration. The only thing they could say that would be shocking to be revealed about the Trump administration was that they were secretly competent, capable, and decent the whole time and were only putting on this crazy shambolic show in public to distract the media. That would be a scoop. I don't anticipate that, <laughs> uh, that book coming out. Uh, on to like uh, relevant political figures. The Chris, we were talking before we started uh, coverage of the California recall where Gavin Newsom's, uh, you know, dining at French Laundry, the nicest restaurant in California, maybe uh, maskless during COVID has spurred backlash and he is being, it's like, I think only the fourth recall in history. No, uh, not. So California has not that anyone needs to know this or cares, but California has had 
over the years, 170 some recalls. They've had recall elections since their stupid recall election law was put in place in 1913 by their terrible governor. For, a, for not a, 179, not for governors. Only, I think of gubernatorials, there's only been, well, there's only been one that resulted in a removal. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's different. There were not, so there are, I think, 11 that went to voters, six total removed, one of them Gray Davis in 2003. California ter- is a terribly organized, awful, it is no way to run a state, and the recall, the whole recall concept is stupid because under COVID laws, they sent out 22 million ballots. <laughs> they sent out 22 million ballots to people saying, hey, have you thought about recalling the governor? That's not how a recall should work. And of course, then if Newsom fails, if he gets under, and by the time we talk again, we'll know, uh, we'll know. But if Newsom fails and gets under 50.1% of the vote, Larry Elder, the talk radio host, seems to be leading the pack among Republican alternatives, although polling on this stuff is going to be super weird and challenging necessarily because of the format and because of the mail and all that. But anyway. Anyways, uh, on to the media coverage. On to the media coverage. Chris, you Take have a listen with, yeah. of course, Chris. Predictably, this is true to form. Chris has beef with the media coverage on the right. I have. That is not fair. With the mainstream media coverage. That is Uh, not fair. But I also, the right's coverage is stupid. So yeah, go ahead. So take a listen to what Tommy Lahren had to say, appearing on uh, Fox News' Outnumbered. But I will say this, to Charlie's point, yes, Gavin Newsom has raised a whole lot of money from teachers, unions, and special interests, and tech, but uh, that money is not going to save him. The only thing that will save Gavin Newsom is voter fraud. So as they say, stay woke, pay attention to the voter fraud going on in California, because it's going to have big consequences, not only for that state, but for upcoming elections. So the... Only thing she says that will save Gavin Newsom is voter fraud, pay attention to voter fraud, blah, 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 blah. Now look, by no means would it be surprising if Gavin Newsom won, the not won, but didn't lose in a state that where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one, one of the most liberal states in the country, and a state where he has not terrible approval ratings, right? He's got 40, he's in the 40, he's got about the same approval ratings as Joe Biden does, mid 40s. Not great, but not terrible. It would be very surprising indeed if he lost. And the fact that it was that it appears to be somewhat or appeared for a time to be somewhat competitive was surprising in itself. For her to say that and for Fox to put it on TV is how you get to a failed system. How you get to a failed system is you just keep talking about voter fraud, even when there's no evidence of it. You just keep claiming it. You keep well, denigrating. Can I ask something? Yeah. I feel like in previous episodes, you've said, oh, come on. You know, the idea that people are doing things because Tucker Carlson said it or didn't say it like that's, you know, people are perfectly willing to indulge in conspiracy theories without like the help of Fox. And so what do you what do you actually think the role of a place like Fox allowing her to say something like this is on what people think? I feel like if he lost plenty, people would think it was stolen anyway. Well, I think so. Last week, we were talking about how we tend to overstate, and I am guilty of this, the power of social media platforms for sharing conspiracy views, right? Uh, And that at a certain point, if people are too... The, the, I think the answer in both is, is true. If you're dumb enough, if you are foolish enough to take Tommy Lahren and listen to her, then it's sort of like the people taking medical advice from Joe Rogan. If our country is in such a bad place 
that there are a lot of people who are listening to Tommy Lahren and who don't understand this and can't go find a reliable source of information, we're screwed anyway. It's all over anyway. It's sort of like the fence around the Capitol, where if you have to fence the Capitol to keep people from coming in, we're Libya. It's over. Uh, kiss it goodbye. So on the uh, so there's a through line. The, the two of them live in the same space, which is at a certain point, you have to just hope that people can understand. But that doesn't mean that it's responsible or good journalism to have people say preposterous, dangerous stuff like that, that undermines people's confidence in what is a the, the envy of the world of running free, fair elections over all of this time and the peaceful transference of power and all those things. So I think both things can be true, that yes, you have to accept the fact that some people will always be duped and you can't prevent that. And if you get a country with enough suckers in it, then you're not going to have a country anymore. As uh, Donald Trump would say about the border, I will say about suckers. You get to a sucker saturation point that you're not going to be able to function anymore. And I know that that's a possibility for us somewhere out in the future. And we don't need the federal government or truth squads to come. We don't need the our right, the writer we talked about last week in, in Harper's talking about the fact check industry and all that stuff. You don't need that to deal with Tommy Lahren. What you need is a responsible, you need responsible management to say, that's not the fact and make sure that your shows are, are constituted in such a way that if somebody says something like that, that they do their job and say, that's- Onto my beef, which is with the mainstream media coverage of the California recall. Yesterday, Larry Elder, who is the African-American Republican, one of the one of the Republican nominees or candidates to replace to replace Newsom, he had an egg thrown at him by some crazy white woman wearing a gorilla mask. And I'd, I don't actually have like beef with the way the mainstream media covered it, which was just to tell us factually that this is what happened. But what did annoy me is that if this had been an African-American Democrat, I'm pretty sure we would be getting like wall to wall, you know, video repeats of the hate crime visited upon Larry Elder and how difficult it is for African-Americans to succeed in politics and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, so that's annoying. I 100% agree. And the, it, I wouldn't want the coverage of this to be as bad as it would have been if the roles were reversed. This was a white Republican woman uh, in a gorilla mask throwing an egg. Well, no, no, I'm saying if she was, oh, so if see, you reverse the roles, if you reverse the roles yeah. and you had a white Republican woman in a gorilla mask, whipping an egg. You know, and a black a Karen, maybe in Central Park. Right, whipping, whipping an egg at a black Democrat, the coverage would be racialized instantly, right? It would, and I don't want that to happen here. But good on Drew Holden, I think was the guy, one of the guys who caught this, who I now he's making me think about being on Twitter more. But but yes, 100%. Up next. Oh, yeah, your item. I, I love this item. The Elizabeth Holmes trial. Yeah. So uh, today, as we're recording this first day of the trial of the Theranos co-founder or whatever, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who bilked $9 billion, or who is accused of bilking billions of dollars out of the richest, smartest people in the world for this blood test that was gonna tell everybody everything. And then it all collapsed and she's being charged. I just noted how well her team, and I assume it's a big team, right? Cause now when you, it, not now, and this has been true for a while, if you go on trial and you're a rich person or you're a person, a, a celebrity, you're not just going to have a lawyer or a legal team. You're going to have a communications team, either through your law firm or independently, that is working on framing the narrative publicly because jurors lie 
and they say, oh, I haven't seen any coverage and I'm not going to watch any coverage. And unless you're sequestered, you know. Jer- well, tell th- us what the Holmes defense team is doing here. So they have recast her over time as so they would say that she's a victim of uh, sexual abuse. They say that she is a, the real victim here and that she was really just being manipulated by male counterpart and that that she that she's the real victim here. And- well, Chris, I'm surprised given your uh, given your charitable accounts of these things that, that you're not sympathetic to this account of Elizabeth Holmes as just a victim of the patriarchy and uh, of an abusive relationship. I am sure that there is truth in what they say. But the great thing about the law is that you it does it shouldn't matter, right? Either she did the things that she is accused of doing or she did not. Either the prosecution can prove that she did the things or they didn't. And by the way, I co- I covered courts for a long time and covered a lot of trials and loved court and trial coverage. And I don't begrudge anybody the chance to try to to spin it their way, right? Uh, you want to get out there and tell your story. I was just, I was taken with the effectiveness of it and how well they did at that. Yeah, I didn't think it actually was super effective. I think the media coverage has been good uh, in terms of skeptical coverage of her account as a victim. And I've been following my high school classmate, ABC News' business correspondent, Rebecca Jarvis, who did a podcast on Elizabeth Holmes and is doing an updated podcast with the trial. And she's been great. And I think it's good. I also love that Rebecca Jarvis, who's a great business reporter and I think had the good sense to understand that there could be a market for female business reporters got her start on the apprentice as runner-up a long time ago what high school saint paul academy in saint paul minnesota what's the that mascot? is not a spartan that is not the saint paul school in in sure. new hampshire which is a boarding school and mm, I, a friend so. of mine who went off to college a few years before she like warned me look when you tell people you went to saint paul academy they're going to be like oh my gosh saint paul's which is a very elite rarefied boring boarding school so yes the other saint paul's well go spartans i want to see what you think and mostly for a future file here but i want to how have you perceived september 11th 20th anniversary coverage so far i to be honest the only thing i've tuned into was the netflix series i forget the name of it right now which the first episode was good and it completely went downhill from there really lack of a lack of like strong strong voices defending what the bush administration did in some cases i think they could have done better than Andy Card and Alberto Gonzalez. They needed some backup. But I'm I actually will be watching the media coverage on it's Thursday, so on Sad 9/11, and I guess we can talk about it next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whatever the Netflix series is, I know it's got to be better than the terrible Clinton impeachment. Oh, uh, are you kidding? I can't wait to watch that. It's well, anyway. Any You know any, what? Ta- Monica, talk about someone who really was the victim. Yeah. And her media reinventing, her changing the narrative and doing that stuff. Many kudos to Monica Lewinsky. And she, the fact that Hillary Clinton will never be president speaks uh, to how views changed on that. That's that's a good point. But that, that Netflix is not good. I haven't seen it yet. I can't wait. I will, we can discuss next week. This Our final item on the front page is just a coda on Afghanistan coverage, which continues as Americans were essentially held hostage by the Taliban, prevented from leaving as the Taliban grounded flights on the runway of the airport in Masri Sharif. I saw a Washington Post uh, headline today. The headline is 
At least 200 Afghan dual nationals, including Americans, leave from newly reopened Kabul airport. It just struck me that a few days ago, these same newspapers were reporting that Secretary of State Antony Blinken said they're not aware of anybody being held on an aircraft or any hostage situation. And now it turns out like, yes, there were not only did they leave Americans behind, but these Americans then have been prevent the Taliban's been preventing them from leaving. And I just think it is a scandal. It is a real story and it is, it is being covered, but not in a way that is critical of the Biden administration. And I think that they should be getting nastier press coverage, given their misstatements, lies, whatever you want to call them on the phone. Yeah, they're, they're, that's been quite a stew of actual lying combined with wishful thinking, wish casting and stuff that and not getting called on stuff that just turned out not to be true. It has been, I, I think the support for the policy that that runs through a lot of the coverage has changed, has really, it's been evident. This leads right into our obsessions, our after the jump segment. So these are our obsessions where we're going to break down the stories that we can't get out of our head. So my obsession is Afghanistan related, but it's like Afghanistan adjacent. The Washington Post and reporter Isaac Stanley Becker, I think, let me make sure I'm getting that right. Yes, who was a Yale Daily News editor-in-chief when he was in college. Uh, They write a story that is essentially, and we'll link this in our show notes, the headline is Corporate Boards Consulting Speaking Fees, How U.S. Generals Thrived After Afghanistan. And the entire story, which is long, really suggests, without saying in so many words, it's like snidely suggests that the David Petraeuses and the Stanley McChrystals who spent a career in the military not making all that much money, risking their lives uh, for the country, should not be reaping the rewards of their work on corporate boards. It does not address at all whether these people have any, like, are adding value to these places, have special knowledge, whether of leadership or not. And it notes the eight generals who commanded American forces in Afghanistan between 2008 and 2018 have gone on to serve on more than 20 corporate boards, blah, blah, blah. And then it says like, this shouldn't be basically because the general, because the military campaign was not successful as if there's nothing else that these guys have to offer corporate board. And it's funny because I read McChrystal's book, which talks a lot about the struggles and the failures in Afghanistan. And I just was, the average reporter at the Washington Post probably makes not all that much less than than these, uh, you know, McMaster is a Lieutenant Colonel, McChrystal, uh, a general. Like they're doing okay, but they're not making the big bucks and they are doing really perilous work. I do think that they have, Uh, particular value to add to businesses. And the other thing that really ground my gears here is that corporate boards are made up of people like kind of at the top of every industry. So why should the military be excluded from this? And I also took issue with the suggestion that like they were cheering on the war because they had some sort of financial interest, which was given, you know, I, I just bad Typical bad snide talk about like condescending and elitist uh, reporting. I I hate the story so much. I, I did not know when you shared it with me how much I could hate it. Quote, the failure of the American mission. So McChrystal recalls that question in his 2015 management manual, team of teams, new rules for engagement for a complex world, which says his wartime leadership techniques can guide organizations 
far from the battlefield toward, quote, successful mission completion, close quote. The failure, the author writes, of the American mission in Afghanistan became deadly apparent last month when the Afghan army collapsed and the Taliban took control. Now, yeah, the American so, men and women who fought in the war well, shouldn't, shouldn't be able to serve on corporate boards. But wait, That's... but wait, but wait. If anybody made the case in this stupid, mean spirited article, if anybody made the case in this article that Stanley McChrystal was the cause of the American right. failure in Afghanistan, I would say, interesting. If somebody had said why David Petraeus was responsible for the failure in Afghanistan, I don't know anybody who thinks that it was military strategy that primarily caused the U.S. failure in Afghanistan. It was a political and public will to fight question, not whether the correct military strategy was being used at any given moment. And for the author of this piece, and I love what happened to the author of this piece, Isaac Stanley Becker. So Isaac Stanley Becker, and I'm guessing here, maybe he planned all, all along this is the way it was going to be. But here's how it reads. He had a hit piece lined up about Stanley McChrystal and other generals cashing in on their experience in the military on corporate boards and speaking fees, and that they, they're going to do this hit piece. And then McChrystal agreed to cooperate. And so the story reads- My so beef, I was pissed McChrystal cooperated. Like, why good is he for McChrystal. turd the time of day? Good for McChrystal. Good for McChrystal for saying, okay, I'll talk to you. You want to talk, dude? You want to talk about what my consulting company makes? You want to talk about whatever? Let's talk. So he talked to him for an hour. And the way the story reads is it's, here's my sneering attack on these corporate fat cats who caused us to fail in Afghanistan. And then it's like, and then here's McChrystal. And so because McChrystal cooperated with him, so there's this back and forth that reads through it that's very interesting. So kudos to McChrystal for participating. Boo to the post for and doing it. McChrystal, I think you could have been making... Uh a lot more money in the hour you spent and uh, I, talking to Isaac Stanley. And for, I would furthermore say a piece that was fair-mindedly done about how much people rake in off of their, that could be interesting. People love that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it seemed to me like there's no reason to single out the military when, as I said, like the people at the top of every industry go serve on corporate boards and get paid a lot of money to basically do not very much. This was, this was hot garb. This was a hot garbage story. Yeah. All right. My obsession, as you know, ever since you broke the news to me that Politico was allegedly worth a billion dollars, I have been like, how can it be? <laughs> how could it possibly be? Because I look at Politico as an outlet that did a lot of harm to the way that we cover politics and the way we talk about politics. And the phenomenon, I, Politico was happening because I got to Washington in 2000. I got to Washington in 2007. So Politico was new and it was like, every, it, it affected everything. Now, as you pointed out the other day, and I think this is something very good to bear in mind, it arrived contemporaneous with Twitter, which also made political coverage microscoped and worse and all of this stuff. So I was excited when I saw a piece in the Washington Post. I'm not, sorry to be dumping on Washington, the Washington Post in both of our obsessions this week, but Perry Bacon wrote a column in the Washington Post about, and the headline was, how the rise of Politico shifted political journalism off course. And I was like, here, he's going to talk about how more in-depth coverage and context is important and microscoops and winning the day got everything wrong. Nope. No, 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 that's not what the problem was at all. He says that the problem was that the Politico normalized Republicans and normalized whiteness and reinforced these damaging tropes and prop and propped up the Republican Party. And 
he's relieved now. He wants us to know that he is now relieved that Politico is not as much of an apologist for the Republicans and not as much of uh, is not as much a, the tower of power for the patriarchy, that at least it's not doing those things. And then excuses, he, he's the part about wrecking coverage, whatever, who cares? The important thing is that they're, they're culturally, ethnically, emotionally appropriate, and that they hate on Republicans like others. Kudos to Politico for becoming like everybody else. And I just thought, how, what a wasted opportunity for a guy who, Perry Bacon was a reporter before, right? I, I had He's no idea. This is a column. Is he still writing? Yeah, I a- think this is a guest column for The Post. Perry actually is an, a, an old friend of mine, and I like him a lot, though I disagree with uh, the majority of what's said in this column. There's a part that I agree with, which I'll get to, but- Which part but- do you agree with? Uh, I, I agree with the part that like politic his his characterization of how Politico changed journalism. And I do I did appreciate that he noted that there's no problem with Politico doing this in and of itself. Like there's a real market for this stuff. The problem was when the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal all tried to do the same thing as Politico. And yeah. then there was a loss. That created like a loss in a vacuum in media. I don't agree, and I will say, Chris, you'll be shocked to discover that. In my three and a half years, whatever, at Politico, his description of how they bend over backwards to treat Republicans charitably, I don't know, that was just was not something I picked up during that time. No. And I, I'm, so I'm looking at his bio page, and I think he is only an opinion writer now. Uh, he does like uh, analysis. I had no idea. Harry, I he, read you. I had no idea when he was a reporter uh, and I was reading his coverage. It was seemed relatively fair. I had no idea that he was this radical. I had no idea that he was this aggressive. And like, here's his previous previous column. The Texas abortion decision shows why the Democrats must push to add four justices. To- well, you know, you make, you make an interesting point, which is that like the vast majority of opinion columnists began as reporters. Yeah. So I have, I got no beef with that. Oh, no, I and don't. I actually I'm- think it's something that to the extent that Perry, like that you thought he was fair-minded, he did his job well. That's praise. Yeah. That's praise, not uh, condemnation. It, but the praise is that I did not, I had no idea that he was this much of a goofball when he was writing news coverage. So kudos to him for keeping it under his hat. The only other thing I have to add to that is, you know, a lot of young people come through the beacon and they say they want to do opinion. And I think they 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 don't understand or they don't want to hear that these opinion columnists spent a decade, two decades, three decades, like Maureen Dodds of the world, yes. EJ Dion. They spent time reporting and that gives you, you know, experiences and a view context um, for which to have opinions. And, and, by, and, by, and by the way, everybody who says that they have opinions, you know, we're talking about the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect writ large across journalism. If you spend some time learning about stuff and if you spend some time reporting, you will have a lot fewer opinions. You'll be surprised at how, at, at how many fewer opinions you have if you have to go out and report day in and day out on things. You will say, this is a lot more complicated than I thought. As my, as my old daddy used to say, Opinions are luxury items. Don't have more than you can afford. Chris, it is time for our Say Something Nice segment. (laughs) Where Chris forces me to say something nice. Chris, you are up first. 
I thought I would experiment this week. I'm not really going to do it because I don't want to. But I, where you say something nice and I say something awful and where I would say something that awful. That would be a nice role reversal. That where I say something awful was going to be about the Hill with the worst headline of the year, Naomi Biden, oldest daughter of Hunter Biden engaged to longtime Bo, the same name as this Hunter Biden's dead brother, Bo. And it was so obvious, so tacky, so gross. I say, I say unto you, the Hill, boo. Uh, but my real- And can you believe the Hill just sold for $130 million? No. With, and with content like that. Call, call, call us about ink-stained wretches. We'll, we'll be, you pay $130 million for us would be a bargain compared to the Hill. But the one I have to share, which is so great, was that my former colleagues, Dana Perino and Jessica Tarlov were on The Five. And they were talking about new things. What are you doing that's new and changes in your life? And uh, Jesse Waters said, well, you know, I had a baby. We had a baby. And Dana arches her eyebrows and looks over at Jessica Tarlov and says, you've got something new coming. At which point Jessica says, well, I guess you've let everybody know that I'm pregnant. So Dana accidentally outed Jessica Tarlov on TV for being pregnant and kudos to my friend Jessica for having being pregnant. That's great. But also for the, a, a nice moment and everybody was happy about it. And Jessica took it in great stride. And what a, this is why live TV has well, Chris, live let's, TV let's has play value. that clip. All right. You know, Jessica, you try anything new. I mean, you got something new coming. Yeah. And now the audience knows. <laughs> so I'm pregnant. <laughs> this is not how. Nicely I'm... done. Really, oh, sorry. You could have said anything. I uh, first of all, I thought people knew. I am so sorry. It's totally. I yeah. I also learned how to make sourdough bread. Okay. Like everybody. Okay. Aww. All right. Congrats, Jessica, Dana. That's a that's a very Eliana move. Totally something <laughs> I would is... do. Uh, speaking of which. Chris, as you know, I am, I guess, five and a half months pregnant. So I loved, I loved the New York Times parenting section piece with the headline, this is your brain on motherhood. Mm, and mm. this really explains everything. So this article says researchers across the world have begun to chip away at this perennial question and the results they've gathered so far are startling. A woman's brain, it seems, may change more quickly and more drastically during pregnancy and the postpartum period than at any other point in her life, including puberty. And those brain changes might herald some of the most stereotypically frustrating side effects of giving birth, like mommy brain, the period of forgetfulness following pregnancy, and the major mood changes that accompany pregnancy. So I am sending that to my husband to let him know. <laughs> yeah, it's not my fault. Anything else? No, just that you're going to be such a great mom. I can't wait to see it. Oh, let's hope. All right. That is the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.